Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. Thank you very much for listening today. Every other week, I interview chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discover their secrets behind the scenes. I want to know what compelled them to become a chef or a bartender. I want to learn everything about their creative process and discover the unknown ingredients that are finding their way in their drinks and dishes. Today is episode number five, and you can find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. Click on the episode page. Today on Flavor Unknown, my guest is Chef Fiori Tedesco from Locadoro, the Golden Goose in Austin. Chef Tedesco will review the path that took him from being a professional drummer in a band to becoming an awarded chef in Austin. You will discover how dreams could be a source of inspiration for creating new dishes and his commitment with his business partner, Adam Orman, to support local farms, a community of individuals, and to allow people working in their restaurant having a sustainable life. Hi, Chef, and welcome to Flavors Unknown. I am super excited to have you on the show, and I know we have a lot to talk about. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me on, Emmanuel. So let's get to it. How would you describe your job in 10 words? Ooh, in 10 words. Hmm. Fighting for space to stay inspired. Constantly dad. Always on. That's 10 words, I believe. I can, I can divulge on those 10 words if you like. Yeah, sure. I would, especially the first one I'm curious about when you talk about fighting for space. So, you know, as a, as an owner of the restaurant and not just, not just the chef, there's, there's a constant pull to uh, jump into into different boats into different parts of the restaurant, wh- whether it be the front of house staff meeting, some some you know mechanical issue, some plumbing issue. There's so many different realms in which I end up getting pulled in the course of the day, and in my job as a chef, and even just managing the 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 staff and the cooks and the constant conversations trying to clear through the weeds of all of it to stay on, on path with my vision of what the, what the food is, what the menu is and what the space is, how it feels and through the, the, the sort of natural forces that inspire me along the way for that. And how do you find this um, balance between like all the elements that you just mentioned? It has been an ongoing quest. It, it's really uh, what I've learned is to, to preserve space and time for myself in the day. And, and it's really can part compartmentalization you know I, I take some cues from my wife is a is a playwright a playwright and a screenwright when she's writing she sits down at her desk and blocks everything out and nothing else happens except aside her writing and um and it's just sort of the ritual of that and to me i try to take some cues from that and set time for myself you know this is going to be my admin time this is going to be the time that i'm available to to answer these questions and the, this is a little bit of time that i am to not be disturbed and, and be able to focus on whatever this thing is that I'm working on. I don't really need space to work on recipes per se. I don't need space or time. Those, uh, uh, honestly, it, it might sound a little funny, but you know, the ideas that I have for 
creating dishes, creating uh, food come to me in the ether. That That is the easy part. Like the ideas, the way they come to me, um, that is sort of nonstop. And I'm sort of constantly filtering out in my head like, oh, this is a good idea because of these ingredients are available seasonally. I would like to showcase this and, and so forth. It's more of a filtering than finding uh, and being able to stay connected with that. So you're saying that your inspiration comes from the ether. Where, where is this inspiration coming from and, and where do you get your ideas and your best idea from? Really, when I say the ether, I mean, it's like paying attention to the world around me. Like I look at, I look at a, a color of a flower of something that's blooming right after a rainstorm. And that makes me think, you know, might be this bright pink flower. And that reminds me, I'm, oh gosh, you know, I, that looks like the color when you, when you aerate like a beet puree which is so is such a like a beautiful intoxicating bright pink color it doesn't it almost looks like a sort of willy wonka food it doesn't seem real and to apply that sort of palette to something vegetal and and healthful and wholesome and earthy is really like appealing so then i start and work outward and try to make a dish out of that i take cues a lot of visual and audio cues to sort of just the world around me part of its nature part of its conversations with other cooks uh, other humans <laughs> from the people I interact with all day. And that somehow filters into ideas for food to me all the time. I've a long time ago that some a switch got turned on to everything that every conversation I have like filters into uh, an idea for something I want to make. And, and luckily that that has not gone away. You said it's coming uh, sometime from visual, sometime coming for, from sound. So I read and we talked about it together that once upon a time, you have been a, a drummer, correct? And I understand like a serious one because you were part of a, a group and you were a professional musician, correct? Yeah, that's true. I'm just curious, how was those years? It was fantastic. I didn't know if I ever really wanted to play music for a living. I was sort of wandering. <laughs> out in the world. And I, I, I wanted to perform. I knew that I, I was, I worked in fashion before that in design, designing in, in interiors. Well, I moved to New York city when I was 18 and sort of fell into a job working as an assistant to a stylist, uh, working on fashion shoots. And I quickly got my own styling jobs and it turned into a visual design position. And before I knew it, I had a, like a, a fancy job and a, a fancy office and sort of a fairly serious design job, had no pedigree for, had no training for, and didn't really necessarily had a passion. I liked the creativity of it. After a, a few years of it, I, I felt pretty lost and I decided I was going to start playing music again, which I had been playing my whole life and started playing with a cousin and we started a band and one thing led to another and that was my career for 10 years. I, I loved it. I, I loved just about every minute of it until... I decided I didn't want to do it anymore, that I, I felt stripped of the creativity and stripped of sort of the will to do that professionally. There's part of the mechanism as a, a sort of indie rock band music business is, has an underbelly that uh, I, I find pretty unattractive and pretty uninspiring. And at a, at a certain point, I decided to do away with that. But along the way, mostly nothing but joy. I love performing. I love being on the stage. I love writing music and playing music and the practice and the rigor around what it takes to be really good, what it takes to be to excel and to feel like I am a master of the craft at the thing that I'm doing. I love that pursuit. 
I love playing the drums. I love singing. I love the arranging. And I, more than anything, I really love the performing. And I miss that. I miss that side of it. And I traveled all over the world. I spent mo- a lot of time in, in Europe touring with a few different bands really paved the way for me to get back into the kitchen and, and make that my career again, really helped distill the idea that this is where I felt that I most belonged. That it was the best place for me to feel like that I could make an impact and, and that I had a, a really direct mode of expression with the world. In a way, I was playing the drums, but I, I didn't feel full. Uh, and I, I'm lucky enough to be able to think about it and change gears and change my life pretty drastically into a way that I feel that I do. Not just in the kitchen, but in owning a restaurant and having a voice as a chef, as the owner of a restaurant that I did not feel before. Is there a specific moment when you decided to change gears and said, that's it, I'm done, now I'm going to become a chef? There is. Uh, there is a, I played a, a show in Foligno, Italy, sort of in foothills of Umbria. We had gotten into town that day and we had been in, in, in Italy for I, the last couple of weeks before that. We had gotten into town and uh, gone through the sound check at this uh, club that we were playing. And the owner of the club uh, was friends with our Italian tour manager uh, and said, we're going to take you to this uh, dinner at our friend's restaurant tonight. Great. So after sound check, we drove up basically straight up the side of a mountain corkscrewing around and got to this wonderful restaurant and had a very, very inspiring meal. We were there for several hours trying wines and food that I never had before. And, and so much of it, that experience reminded me of my childhood. The, the chef's mother was like grilling the meat on a charcoal grill outside, the sort of the wild boar flank that we were then eating. And she reminded me so much of my mother and she came and gave me a kiss on the head. I was so moved. In the course of this meal, I just started sobbing openly <laughs> at a at a at a dinner table with a bunch of other rock and rollers, and <laughs> I was really touched. And and still, that that this is not the the crux of it. I'm I'm moved, and we're having this wonderful time, and we're sort of drinking too much. And I look down at my my watch, and it's it's one in the morning. We had been there for, I guess, since seven eight o'clock. Oh man! And and look down, like we were supposed to play an hour and a half ago. We're with the owner of the club and say, what, what's going on? He's like, well, you know, they'll, they'll be there when you get there. And <laughs> there's still no rush. We get there. There's a packed club. We play this amazing show to this huge packed audience and this not very big club. And then we walk from the club at the end of the night to we're staying in sort of a little reformed monastery that was sort of a, a little bunkhouse where the other band members and I were, were, were put up. And that night I had a dream. And in that dream, that meal that I had had, that magic meal that I had had uh, just a few hours earlier, the dream was I was eating that meal again, except all the food that was being presented to me, it was being put right in front of me. It did not look the same. It looked like clouds. Every dish looked like, like a, basically a slightly tinted, white cloud and then i would put my face into the cloud and eat it and it tasted i tasted all those same flavors which was this uh, this beautiful wild boar flank with this pistachio lavender cream under it it was mind-blowing the the meal was mind-blowing this dream changed my life i woke up in the morning and i i could remember every bit of that dream and i was all that came to me was 
I want to learn how to recreate what just happened in that dream. That food that I had, being able to transform that into some other shape, some other form, and be able to put that in front of someone and have them experience all of that the way I did in the dream is what I want to do. That's what I want to do now. How did your friend from the group react when you mentioned that to them? Or did you mention that? <laughs> I did. They, they were like, wow, that's a pretty intense dream. You must have, I wish I was drinking. I, were we all drinking the same wine? It sounded pretty far out to them. But then again, uh, this is not so bizarre for me. It's sort of acute and very articulate version of a lot of things that I experienced. My mind works in, in a way that from having collaborated with a lot of other musicians, a lot of other chefs, a lot of other people over the years, my mind works in a sort of peculiar way. I do my best to try to stay on top of it and <laughs> stay in control of things. But I feel like I have a lot of information come at me in really peculiar ways. And, and I really try to stay open to it because those dreams, these, these thoughts that have come in, these, and often in dream form, often in sort of like waking, half-conscious ways, uh, are, are some of the things that have uh, changed, changed the course of my life, that it informs a lot of the biggest decision-making in my life, for better or for worse. And do you have the inspiration for the dishes in your current menu that um, appears in dreams as well? Yes. There's a, a dish that I made. I, I, I think you might be familiar with it. I made a, this uh, beet risotto with uh, short rib and uh, ginger mascarpone and pickled apple I am. dish with lemon verbena. That came to me in a dream. Mm. Like I woke up in the morning uh, <laughs> and had, and this, this is a dream that I had last year and I started tinkering with it last year and, and I've had I've played with different versions of it. The dream was not super articulate about that put together as a dish, but there, there was something about beets and apples and ginger and being like surrounded by blades of grass that somehow remind me of cows and remind me of oh, beef. And then, so that, that all came to me in a dream and I woke up and wrote it down and uh, made, you know, that day went and made that dish. But wasn't it as well interpretation of a recipe from your grandmother? Totally. So that's, that's the other side of it is, you know, taking the, taking this thing that comes in a dream, taking this idea that comes from some some kind of inspiration and then putting it through different prisms like i i feel like i live every day close to my grandmother who passed 20 years ago and my restaurant is very much inspired by her about the 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 comfort of the way that she made food for me and the comfort of her affection was really displayed through her cooking food most of the time and i you know the hundreds hundreds of meals that I had with her that she would make for me. And she would make, you know, uh, basically a, a very simple beef and rice soup for me when in the wintertime, or it was basically like beef knuckles or like very, you know, tough trim. And I put that dream I had through the prism of that very comforting soup that she would make for me and made a risotto, made my subsequent dish out of sort of those two, those two ideas. So maybe it's your grandmother speaking to you through those dreams. That would be really lovely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's never, I've, I've never once had any like hint of articulation that feels like my grandmother's trying to talk to me, yet I always feel close to her. Tell us about your restaurant 
in Austin called Locadoro and how it pays homage to your family roots? Well, Locadoro has been open now for two and a half years, and Locadoro means the golden goose in Italian. It's named after my daughter. Uh, my daughter's name is Lucinda Lucy, Lucy Goose. So she was born with big shocks of curly blonde hair. And so I, I named the restaurant after her, but definitely inspired by, as I was saying, inspired by my, my, my grandmother's style of cooking and inspired by the idea of this rustic, comforting, familial food experience that I felt really, really close to. And I felt that I had been spending all this time in different kitchens and a lot of fine dining and a lot of different refined atmospheres learning these refined techniques and all led me back to the desire to really express all of that through a very, very humble prism, through a very humble format. And often we're taking these ideas, taking all the, these foods and, and trying to strip away anything that's extra, trying to strip away anything that, that is, has any pretense or has any, anything that doesn't really ring true to the core and the comfort of that dish and displaying food and, and a brand of hospitality that is sincere and soulful and honest. And it's been working really well. Let's go back one moment on, on the music aspect. How does the music and your past experience as a musician play a role in your creative process? I can try. Trying to connect with the, the world that inspires me in that way, it's the same way for me as a musician and as a chef. It's really in, in, in a way as a creator of, of things. I feel most comfortable in the world when I'm creating not to say that anything is necessarily all that new, but it's new to me. Calling ideas from, from those places in the, the dark reaches of my brain and reaching out into the world and calling ideas from that world. It's the same as a musician and as a, and as a, and as a chef to me. And it's really using the, the same discipline that I developed as a, as a musician growing up. That discipline of, you know, as a drummer, you have to, you're going to play the song every night and you're going to do a recording of the song. You want to make it sound the same. So, so it was thousands of hours of practice to make sure that I could articulate with my hands and feet and my body and focus myself and steel myself to repeat and, and work in a disciplined, focused way to express those feelings and express those thoughts in a, in a controlled way. And, and I, and I tried to, I hope to use that same sort of discipline as a chef and, and, and the way I, I stay true to techniques and, and preparing something and preparing different foods and my focus and paying attention to what's, uh, what the ingredient is asking me to do to it. Really interesting. You took the process and the discipline from your past experience as a professional musician and you applied it in your current role as a chef. But I want to know if music is playing a role in the creation of your menus. I've read that you guys have uh, put together some pop-up dinners before and private um, you know, events that were related to the music themes. And I think you had like a series called the Dinners to Rock To. Ah, yeah. Yep. Can you explain a little bit and give us an example? <laughs> sure. The inspiration for that dinner series and for that pop-up altogether, I didn't really have a strong idea that I was going to do a pop-up. I had been working at Franklin Barbecue for a year or so at that point, and uh, 
the Franklins were and still are they're wonderful friends and they're wonderful bosses and they're trying to figure out what like what the creative role for me was uh, I was cooking ribs and I was cutting I was you know sort of often the 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 face of the the restaurant during service I would be there cutting the brisket and talking to people both both jobs I loved you know and I'd often cook the ribs and then serve the brisket all all, all day and cut the barbecue I really I loved my job there Yet I had all these ideas I was constantly trying to share with the Franklins. What if we did this? What if we did this? What if we did this? And they weren't ideas that the Franklins wanted us to do at the time. So uh, what they, they offered to me, what if, you, uh, what if you stop pestering us with these ideas and we give you the restaurant once a week and every Sunday you do a pop-up? It's yours to do as you want. I said, okay, well, cool, thanks. I don't know what I want to do, but I'll think about it. I remember this, the, the weekend that I came up with the ideas for the Dinner's Rock 2 dinner, it was a Easter weekend. And on Easter Sunday, I hadn't slept in two days. And I got done with the rib shift. And I was trying to rush home at 11 a.m., then rush to my mother-in-law's house for an Easter egg hunt that was set up for my daughter. And I was in a hurry and sort of googly-eyed and totally underslept. And jump home, I just t- to take a quick shower. And as like I got in the shower... And uh, a song came in my head, and it was a Neil Young song. And it was from the album uh, On the Beach. And the song came to my head, and immediately it triggered a, a visual that I had growing up from uh, my cousins grew up in uh, Nahant, Massachusetts, and there's a, a beach called 40 Steps Beach. And I remember what it looks like on that, that beach, looking out straight ahead to this lighthouse and sort of the rocky cliffs around in the, the the near side around you and the sort of the, the ocean sort of lapping up onto the shore. And that song then connected to that visual, which then connected to, oh, that'd be so fun if I made a make a dish to articulate this this feeling that I'm ha- having. And all while in the span of a couple of minutes I came up with this idea of what if I made this tower of sort of a scallop and and foie and foie gras sort of layered as a torchon, so almost like a candy striped torchon of those two elements with cockles and periwinkles lining represent and representing sort of the, the rocks and the seashore and the, the scallop and foie representing the lighthouse and making a blue algae sort of puree as sort of the, the water washing on the beach. And so I got out of the shower and I start writing this idea down, making myself late for my daughter's Easter egg hunt. Then, but I'm very happy that I articulated this idea. And then I, I'm driving over to the Easter egg hunt, and then I'm thinking to myself, oh, whoa, what if what if I do, so that dish is now, what do I call that dish? I call that dish on the beach. It's from like that Neil Young album. Now, what if I make a series of, like a dish for every one of my favorite Neil Young albums? That would be, what a cool thing that would be to do. And so I uh, went to the Easter egg hunt and came back, and that night, I wrote out a whole menu of my Neil Young dinner of these seven dishes inspired by these albums and find these ways to sort of connect the ideas. And then still that night I did, uh, I wrote out the, uh, a menu for the talking heads and the police and the misfits. And I think you did some for like around the, the clash as well and Prince. Yeah. 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 I was trying, I'm, I'm saying that's what I, the menus that I wrote, I, I wrote just that first night. Oh, I did sort of four or five menus. We we ended up doing 30, 40 menus 
you have done one inspired by the Sex Pistols and you call it like the hate menu. So what was that? <laughs> so we, we actually did uh, at Locadoro, we did a Valentine's Day menu. We did a love versus hate menu, the uh, Sex Pistols, and they, they were representing the hate side versus Stevie Wonder representing the love side. Many of these menus had become was a conversation between myself and Adam Orman, my, my business partner in the restaurant, who was my partner in the pop-ups as well. I met him and uh, presented this sort of wacko idea to him right after I had come up with it. Hey, do you want to do this with me? To which every step along the way, he has said no to every idea that he said. But uh, within a week, uh, he's on board with all of it, um, <laughs> which has gotten us pretty far so far. Mm-hmm. We've had these ideas together and just go back and forth with them. So you guys, in fact, started under the, the name Locadoro as series of pop-up dinners, correct? And private events before having and opening the restaurant in 16. That's right. Starting that the restaurant, as we know, it's going to be, you know, very complex and stressful. So there's maybe a lot of people, you know, that are thinking and they are interested in getting into the business. So do you have any, you know, tips from, you know, for them? Learn about real estate. I mean, really, it's the the business of it is the business of opening a restaurant and how it intersects with creativity is a, a really difficult relationship. I had a, a friend recently, I was talking to a friend in New York last week. She loves food. She's an excellent cook. And she was thinking about getting into the food business. She's a, a mom of two kids. She's a, an architect, wonderful and super talented human being. And just thinking about starting a food business and to which I say, why? What is the, the cost of, of you disrupting everything, you, all this beautiful life you have in front of you to make these food products? It has to be more than just making the food. It has to be, if you want to make people happy making food, have dinner parties. Honestly, like it's, it's, not, it's not enough for business. It's not near enough. If you want to make a living making food, think about it for a long while and, and really try to come to a very, very firm understanding of what that, what that means to you and why you want to do that. Because generally, it's a bad idea. And I would say this to 99.9% of everyone, don't open a restaurant. There's, there's, better, there's more important things to do in the world for most of us. And then for the one-tenth of 1% one of you that think that uh, I'm, I'm talking to you, Learn about real estate, learn about, un- understand the language of business and the language of real estate. And once you get past why you want to open that food business and you're very, very clear and you've gotten a lot of other opinions thinking it's a very good idea for you to do this and that it's a salient idea, then you get to the hard part, all the, the contracts and the commitments and the responsibility, you really prepare yourself for it. Because there's, once you get started with that, there's no going back. The, then you get to a point of it's either success or failure. That duality is not fun. Like that is the least fun part of it to me. I don't thrive in knowing, gosh, we're, we're successful. Like it, it, that it's, it's sort of an empty didactic relationship. I think about it in a more nuanced place, but it's hard to really embrace the joy of success in that paradigm for me. Because you're up against so much all the time, just in what it takes to make a business successful. 
and it comes with responsibilities too because there's a lot of people involved you know in the restaurant it's not only you and and your you know partner but um there's all the, the people working you know in that restaurant day in and day out and and that for me like to the next point is and i know this is something very important to you is that that restaurant business and the bar industry you know it's it's a lot of money of course it generates you know i think more than two billion you know dollars uh, on a yearly basis but there is almost 30,000 people working there day to day. We know nowadays, you know, cultural issues that intersect with the, the, the restaurant industry and especially the one related to, you know, race and gender, immigration status. So I, I read that Locadoro, and we talked together about it not too long ago, that Locadoro is what we call a sanctuary restaurant. Yep. And that you guys work with the RO. ROC United, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to raise wages and benefits and and the overall industry standard. Can can you explain what is what does that mean, sanctuary restaurant? Sure. I, I guess I'm going to back up a little bit and just try to intersect what we're talking about with that broader question. Once you get to the point that you want to open a restaurant and you realize that it's going to take other people to help this vision come true, it's going to take other people and it's going to take farmers and producers, and it takes a community of people to make this come true, then the next question to me is, how do you honor them? How do you do this in a way that makes everyone's life richer? Or even that you don't compromise anyone's life in the pursuit of a restaurant? Basically, that is a very, very complicated question. Because uh, most restaurants are propped up by the industrial food system, because that's you want to get your cans of tomatoes, you, your bags of sugar, your bags of flour. The industrialized food system is not a system in which I really want to be uh, really attached to in that sort of way. What I want to be attached to is people, people that are growing that produce, whether it be a small farm or a very large farm. I want to be connected to their stories and know how our relationship exists. It is not about small versus big to me, per se. It's more about those relationships and being able to be a part of them and articulating them and know what my place is in that system and know what their place is within my system. When Adam and I were coming up with the idea of this restaurant, we put that question and uh, not just about the producers, but about our farmers, the producers, and all the people that would come and work with us we put the question of their livelihood and the quality of li- their livelihood at the center of it. And once you put that at the center of a restaurant, you realize that industry is not based around their successes. It's based around the restaurant trying to survive in a pretty tough environment and making the sacrifices to all those other places so that you can survive, meaning the uh, a minimum wage throughout the country that is generally suppressed below what is uh, a livable wage. and you know, that there are restaurant lobbies, the NRA, that uh, works to help suppress that wage. And you start to dig in and, and, and look at the, the fabric of what the restaurant industry is and realizing that there, for us to work the way that we wanted to, to celebrate the farmers and the producers and, and the people that work with us, that we are going to have to work away and sort of swim, swim against the, the sw- stream a bit to sort of make our to make our vision come true and that's where we where we found uh, RC United and 
I connected with some of my, my former co-workers and, and supervisors from, from uh, Union Square Hospitality Group that look at it from, from similar standpoints and address similar challenges, specifically with the idea that we share is that we can provide a better place for people to work if we, we do not subscribe to the system of, of tipping. If we take that the tipping as a service charge and embed that in the price of our menu, it gives us a greater opportunity to remove ourselves from the way people are generally paid within a hospitality environment and to basically distribute that evenly to all the, the workers in a restaurant to ensure that everyone that works in our restaurant is paid a living wage. We've been operating that way every day since we've been open and have been working every day to further that cause uh, through a, a few different mechanisms. One, we just started a, a trade organization called Good Work Austin to help develop and provide resources to small business owners in Austin that want to work in the same way that we do in our partners in this organization work, which is to celebrate the rights of the workers who work in our businesses. And so, again, what, what is a sanctuary restaurant? So is it like a label? Yeah, the label san uh, sanctuary restaurant, it is a, that this restaurant is a safe place, is a, a, a safe working haven for every employee, and, and that there is no discrimination towards anyone, that no one is judged upon their, their gender, their orientation, their immigration status, that everyone from every walk of life is, is welcome there, is welcome to work there, and is judged on the quality of their character and their work uh, and nothing else. If there's a way for us to know if like a restaurant is part of that label and called sanctuary restaurant, if there's, um, if there's a sticker on the door of the restaurant, if there's, so how does it work? That, that is a really good question, and the answer is a, a little more nuanced. And this is a big challenge for us. The farm-to-table movement within restaurants has, has gotten pretty pervasive through a lot of restaurants uh, throughout the country to the point where it has started to ebb away at the fabric of sort of what the idea of that means. And sort of a lot of casual diners will connect a farm-to-table restaurant to what we do, which is taking that idea a little further. But it's really connected to the same idea that we are supporting small local farms. We are supporting a community of, of individuals and, and small businesses. And that is very true that we do that. What is not true is that the fast food companies that are changing their design and changing their aesthetic to look like they belong to that movement, it is not true that they are. They are not. And very few restaurants actually are. But it looks to the casual diner, there are a lot of restaurants, there are many restaurants in Austin that basically there's a lot of bait and switch of we will soft sell. These restaurants will soft sell the idea of what they do the idea that they are connected to these farms and these farmers and then that treat their employees well. But critically, I know that they do not, but the guest doesn't know. The question is, how do you make that information available? And it goes beyond the sanctuary label. We have a, we have a sticker on our door that says we are a sanctuary restaurant, but I don't think it ends there. I'm really looking for answers myself. How to do is how to engage the customer so that they are making a, a more conscious decision and how they consume. How do you make a more conscious decision? And do I want a taco or a burger or a bowl of pasta? Hey, I only support businesses that treat their employees fairly or that pay their employees fairly 
or that treat their ecosystem with respect? How can they correctly recognize what those businesses are? Because currently, there are a lot of restaurants that fool them into thinking every time they go and eat a burger there, they're making the world a better place. That every time they eat a burger there, that they are supporting the small, small local farms. I don't want my role to be the one that's like calling out these businesses. What I would much prefer is to help people be informed about who actually is doing good work, who actually is supporting the rights of the workers that work with them, who care about communities, who are trying to make employees and small, small businesses around them and small farms, trying to put the focus there to help those people thrive rather than putting the focus on what the bottom line of the restaurant is. At the end of the day, we all have to pay our bills, right? I don't have any uh, illusions of becoming a rich man owning a restaurant. If you do, you probably have your priorities in the wrong place. And if the goal is to make myself rich, then I'm making different choices. If the goal is to make a sustainable restaurant that sustains people in a healthy, holistic way, by holistic meaning that I'm allowing those 25 employees that we have to live holistic, holistic to, to live sustainable lives, that they are making a living wage, they can make responsible decisions for them, and that I'm supporting these farmers in a way that help them to reach those same goals for themselves, then I'm doing it right. Whatever is left over for profits, great. But it, it is not, you know, and I'm sorry to our investors when they, they hear me talk like this, it is not purely a profit-driven business. And we will not ebb away at our values for the sake of, you know, a couple extra dollars. I think it's it's a very noble mission, you know, of uh, from your your restaurant. And but the the consumer, you know, would be probably interested to uh, to learn more about it and to be aware of it. And that's probably of the mission of the ROC United, you know, to uh, to work on this and and communicate about it because consumers know about. You know the label, as you said before, the farm to table, uh, the logo, uh, and the and the positioning of like slow food. But really, a lot of people have heard about the sanctuary. Yeah, and the interesting part about it is it's it's a marketing issue. In order to win that battle and to win sort of that that perception battle and help people contextualize and understand, you have to be a very apt and talented marketer of what you do. And often that's not what uh, restaurant tours are some sometimes those restaurant restaurant that are brilliant marketers have very successful restaurants because they are clearly selling the brand of what they do to people and people love to know exactly what they're doing if i want to sell you a burger i can sell you a burger in 40 different ways i can sell you a burger telling you this is raised by this is all beef raised by the farmer next door i can sell you a burger based on this is uh this is going to help you relive your childhood and that sort of pastoral 60s like revival restaurant this is like this is the burger the kind of burger your grandparents ate and isn't that cool there's so many different ways to sell it and selling it in the way of hey this is the place that supports cr creates a living wage for all the, the employees it is not as obviously appealing it is not as fun and generally when people eat out and when people are making a decision i'm going to go eat out of the house fun has to be there Right, like it, it's a big part of that choice of because you're you're saying I I want to be relinquished of the responsibility of making a meal for myself today. I want somebody else to do it for me, and part of that is 
make that experience fun for you, make it easy for you, make it, you know, it is, there's an inner entertainment factor. And if there's, you know, social responsibility and social justice starts to come into fray, that really starts to push on different buttons for people. And it's, it becomes not as sexy, not as fun. And a big part of that challenge is to change those perceptions and, and make that civil engagement, make every, that, that choice of engaging in a positive civil way, in a progressive, making a, a positive choice for your community, being a fun choice and, and drawing those connections. I think that is, that is a billion dollar idea and that will make our world a better place when, when, when we figure out how to, how to draw a really positive connection between those two. But it is really um, great what you, you are doing with Adam, your partner on, at the restaurant. Thank you. So let, let's go back a little bit on um, the food aspects of things. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to know what ingredients are irreplaceable to you. There are a couple of ingredients that uh, we use all the time. You think about the sort of Italian, Italian cuisine, like in the savory sense, garlic and chilies. We ferment most of those ingredients first before we use them because you get, you get a, a, a softer, brighter, more flowery, more nuanced flavor profile out of it. What is irreplaceable to me is like fermented chilies. And we ferment 12 different kinds of chilies that grow here in Central Texas, some of which are more Italian varieties that are grown for us. And so we'll use sort of Caparino cherry peppers and Fresno chilies in fermented form. And uh, we ferment hundreds of pounds of local garlic when it comes in, as well as green garlic. And we use the brines from those chilies and we use them, you know, sliced or brunoise or pureed uh, as a base for a lot of a lot of different parts of the menu. And you have an, an unique and unfamiliar ingredients that you have been using lately? Hmm. There, there's a herb farm, the urban chili farm called uh, La Flaca Farm. Uh, and they're, they're really wonderful. They work really closely with us when I have an idea. Can you grow this weed or this flower? And often, like, I want, uh, I want a lot of dishes to be finished with different flower buds and, and herbs that really bring uh, a lot of light and, and liveliness to these dishes to finish. And so I'm always doing research and always tasting through a lot of different herbs. And some of them do not readily exist here. Um, one, one of which was like calamint. Calamint, also known as nepatella in, in sort of Tuscan cuisine. We started growing uh, nepatella, calamint, uh, at La Flaca Farms so that we could use it with a mushroom dish that I was working on. In researching so like Tuscan food anthropology and like the history of sort of truffles and the history of like porcini mushrooms, different ways that they're complemented throughout uh, the centuries in that region. Nepatella kept coming up and I researched what that was. And it, it's basically an, an herb that you see, that you'll see in the wild a lot in Southern and Central Italy, um, but you do not see so readily in the States. It's sort of a hybrid flavor and uh, olfactory profile that somewhere between mint and basil and thyme and even sage it just has this like really sort of transcendent profile that is sort of all over the place um but it is a really great contrast to really earthy flavors i love pasta so i i cook pasta at home i would like time to time to do something like unique and and different and 
So can you give me uh, like an idea of how I can make uh, like a new pasta dish uh, with a new twist? Yeah. Hmm. I have a feeling you're a pretty good cook, Emmanuel. So I don't know. I don't know what I get to teach you here, but oh come on. <laughs> often it's especially within a pasta, you don't think about the element of like smoke per se. You'll you you know if you make uh, people love carbonara, right? And when you're making carbonara, you use so, sort of traditionally pancetta, but some really like the addition of a, a smoky bacon and that little bit of smoke with the egginess is really nice. I really like to use uh, greens in that way. So especially within the season and something we're doing right now on a dish is uh, I'm, we're, we're grilling greens. We're taking sort of the greens from our radishes and turnips and, and mustards and some kale and chard. We're tossing them in just olive oil and salt, which is, is you can do at home. And if you have a little grill, if you have a place to cook over wood at all, this is really, really helpful. But this is even, you can even take some smoking chips and, you know, put this on a, on a tray and wrap it in foil and give it a little smoke. But what we do, we have the wood burning grill at the restaurant. We'll take a bunch of these greens and char the greens, toss in the oil and salt to help accept some of that smoke from it. Char the greens and then braise those greens in, in whatever you want. You can braise those greens in wine. And whatever stock you're, you want to use, of a vegetable stock, a pork stock, beef stock, whatever, and braise those greens. And then say you, you toss whatever pasta, you toss like a, like a, sh a short pasta, we're using like a casareche shape. So something that will accept some of the, that smoke that is now getting into that broth. So you braise those smoky greens in that broth and all of a sudden you have something way super complex and super sort of meaty without having any meat in there at all. And so say you toss sort of that short, short noodle, maybe let's say it's like penne, toss that, that penne with your braised greens and uh, a, a little garlic and a little pecorino. And gosh, that's, that's about as a good, as good as it gets to me. So do, do you do not use the, uh, the uh, egg yolk in, then in that case, right? In that pasta? No, but gosh, it'd be, it'd be really good in there. <laughs> I'm definitely of the belief like that, you know, the, the the put an egg on it idea is is not lost on me. Like an egg, an an egg is a perfect food. Yeah, I was talking with a friend not too long ago at a restaurant, and we said hey, every time you put a piece of bacon, every part, every time you put you know an egg yolk on it, everything goes fantastic. You know, it's a great great food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a way in which is creatively from like as from like a chef's standpoint, it's almost like a cheap trick because you know it makes it better. So I'm, I'm always thinking about those ways not, to, you know, I want to make the best dish possible. And, and if putting an egg on it is the thing that's going to make it immediately best, best and make it sing, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to shy away from it. But I think about what are the other, what are the other things that do that same thing? And one thing that we do when, when I get that idea of if I want to put uh, an egg on it, what is, what is the idea? What is the flavor profile of that? Is that, that sort of richness, that creamy richness of that? And, we make batarga at the restaurant. We take a uh, bro sacks from tuna and uh, mullet that we'll get into the restaurant that we'll start getting in the restaurant actually in, in November, uh, mid, mid late November during the spawn, you'll see the bro sacks and then we cure them. You have batarga and it is eggs. So, right. So often we'll, we'll do play like a play on different egg dishes while using that shaved, those shaved fish eggs in the place of where you would normally use an egg and get like similar results and uh, a, with a little more refinement and a little more complexity. 
So, Chef, we are almost at um, at the end. In fact, we have been talking quite a while. <laughs> and, um, I have a series of rapid fire questions for you. So, just answer what comes to your mind. Got it. Where do you eat in Austin when you are off the clock? Bufalina, home, a lot, and uh, and suerte. So, give me three dishes you could not live without cooking or eating. A fried egg. It would break my heart to not, not eat a fried egg anymore. Pasta with like broccoli robin sausage. That is like the, the comfort food of my childhood. Please don't ever take that away from me. One more. Fried chicken. There's so many ways to make fried chicken. And like at the times when I'm having like a, when I, I want to celebrate, if it's my birthday and Adam's going to, my partner, my business partner, Adam wants to do something nice for me. He knows that he's probably getting a bucket of fried chicken before we do anything else. <laughs> Are you butter or olive oil? Oh, uh, gosh, I both. Both. Oh, okay. Both. I mean, I really love them in tandem. I think they make better sauces when, when put together. The emulsification qualities of butter are magical. I, I'll say I just came from like a week and a half of, in Italy and then a week in France and went from olive oil culture to butter culture pretty fast and ate some of the best olive oils and some of the best butters built in the world and don't really want one without the other. They both have so much utility and I say both. Are you pizza or pasta? Oh, that is a, that is a very mean question, Emmanuel. I know. <laughs> well, if pressed in, in the simplest way, pasta, but gosh, <laughs> I love pizza. <laughs> Would you rather have a bottle of an okay wine or a glass of a fantastic wine? A glass of a fantastic wine any day of the week. Yes. And what's your favorite place uh, to eat beside Austin? I think, I think Mexico City. We've gotten to go to Mexico City a, a lot in the last couple of years. And it's one of the most magical cities and culturally diverse and culturally and intelligent and honest. And there is so much honesty and expression in the food, in the most humble foods in Mexico City. And you like the full spectrum, like from the amazing street carts and tlacoyos and tacos from the street to the most refined experiences at places like Pujol and all along the spectrum. It's just there's so much to experience food wise in, 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 in that city. Okay, chef, um, you know that we have been talking that more than an hour. <laughs> And that's amazing. And um, I, I really want to thank you so much for being a part of uh, the show, Livers Unknown. Uh, thank you for, for being so flexible and, um, and sharing all those stories with us. Emmanuel, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for, for having me on and, and, and letting me express. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening today. And if you have any comments, you are always more than welcome to. Just head to flavorsunknown.com and click on the contact page. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.